Welcome to the Counselors of Real Estate's Top 10 in 20 podcast series. In these 20-minute episodes, we'll discuss one of the prevailing top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier, President and Founder of Retech Advisors in Falls Church, Virginia, and Chair of the Counselors of Real Estate's External Affairs Committee that develops the annual Top 10 list. Counselors of real estate are trusted advisors solving the world's most complex real estate challenges. Experienced, innovative, and credentialed problem solvers, counselors practice in 20 countries and offer expertise in more than 50 real estate disciplines across all asset classes. Each has earned the prestigious CRE designation. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Hugh Kelly, Director of Academic Affairs at Fordham University's graduate degree, real estate programs, and principal of Hugh Kelly Real Estate Economics. He has also served as global chair of the Counselors of Real Estate in 2014. A prolific writer, speaker, and presenter, Dr. Kelly authored the narrative on economic renewal, which is the number two issue of this year's top 10 issues affecting real estate. COVID-19 was the number one issue, and each of them are interrelated to one another. Welcome, Hugh. Hugh, as we pass the halfway point in calendar year 2020, real estate is facing a triple threat. We are in a public health emergency, an economic contraction of historic proportions, and a sudden explosive condition of civil unrest. It would be tempting to ascribe the confluence of the three elements to monumental bad luck. Are these a black swan or have there, be, have there been prior signs? That's a great question, Deb. Uh, you know, a lot of people think of the black swan as a totally unpredictable disaster, but it doesn't mean that. A black swan is a low probability event with massive consequences, and that certainly fits what we're seeing. Economic models can never precisely predict the future, but economic historians uh, like John Kenneth Galbraith have given us some telltale signs that things are going off the rail. You know, one is that speculative ex expectations arise, that growth is going to continue forever. Uh, a second is that uh, you get decision makers who lack historical perspective. And the third is that there is just a general overconfidence, uh, uh, sometimes called financial euphoria. Uh, and it's reinforced by happy talk from politicians uh, uh, expressed in the media. So I think that those signs have been around for a few years. I've been writing about them for about 18 months in my column in uh, Commercial Property Executive. The biggest warning of our economic fragility, I think, happened in plain sight. And that was the, uh, the uh, government shutdown in the winter of 2018, beginning of 2019. Uh, despite low unemployment, despite a great stock market, all it took was 800,000 people to miss a couple of paychecks, to see people running to food banks and to their relatives to help meet the rent and the mortgage uh, uh, payment. So that was a sign that we were much more fragile. The Fed had warned about that even the summer before in a study that said that 40% of the households in the United States couldn't withstand an unexpected $400 uh, uh, emergency expense, and it, that really proved to be true. 
Well, let's talk about the counselor's foresight into the fragility of the economy versus the prevailing complacency. To what do you attribute their insight? Well, you know, in, in the piece uh, that we published, I quoted a couple of, of elements in which the counselors really said, we're coming to the end of the cycle, you know, uh, and it's not going to end smoothly. It's likely to end disruptively. How would they know that? when the conventional wisdom was so different. And I think it's because we're talking to our clients all the time. And our clients are very demanding. They want their advisors to go beyond the obvious and to, to help them prepare for a, a future that may be different from what led up to the present time. So uh, that means thinking forward. That means an independent evaluation, uh, leading sometimes to recommendation that you should be aggressive in seizing some gains, and other times that you should start playing defense. So the first factor, I think, in, 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 uh, in, in anticipating this was that we had a, a habitual mindset that's oriented towards strategy. And then the second element is that counselors have typically been in this business 20, 25, 30 years. They've been through cycles. They know that cycles are part of the real estate experience and they're always thinking cyclically ahead. So being thoughtful about that experience, I think is part of the reason that the uh, annual top 10 uh, issues for, for the CREs has proved to be a good pathway or good roadmap for our clients and for the industry. Let's turn our discussion to the impacts of the economy on real estate. Many are referring to the unprecedented nature of the current situation with so much changing and evolving quickly. Share with us how the counselors integrated a lot of new information about the public health situation to extrapolate the effects on real estate. Well, yes, I mean, uh, it's not only un unprecedented, uh, at least for the last hundred years, uh, since the Spanish uh, flu pandemic, uh, just after uh, World War One, uh, but it's something that that requires CREs and anyone who's looking at this to develop at least a level of understanding of reading the epidemiological science, and I think that that's what the uh, External Affairs Committee did in so many of of, of its. It actually didn't rely on the press. Went back and read what the university researchers were saying, what the National Institutes of Health people were saying, what the, the uh, World Health Organization was saying, getting back to, to the uh, raw data. So we monitored that during the March to June period when we were writing this, this uh, top 10 uh, uh, program. But we can't stop there because this virus is changing. This virus is mutating. That's what viruses do. So we have to stay on top of, uh, of that. So we've seen evidence in the last uh, four, five, six weeks of the spread of the virus from its original epicenter in the Northeast into the states of the South and the West, into the Texases, into the Floridas, into the Californias, into the Arizonas. And that's gonna be affecting the uh, real estate markets there large and small, the big cities and the small rural areas as, as, as well as these economies need to prioritize their public health response 
uh, and uh, 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 keep uh, what had been, I think, a premature opening of their economies uh, uh, to rein that in a little bit. So that's why uh, I'm forecasting that this is a W-shaped recession. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the idea that that we would have the sharp downturn and then a bounce back from a very very low bottom, but then a return to uh, to some contraction and then very slow growth thereafter. That has enormous implications for real estate because it means that the pricing models that we've uh, uh, we've developed for real estate, and I will also say for stocks, uh, have probably overpriced the assets. So what's the same and what's different about the economy and therefore about its impact on real estate, looking at some of the factors you were just speaking of? Yeah, um, yeah one of my favorite quotes from literature is the opening line of Anna Karenina, which is all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All expansions are very similar, but every recession is a little bit different. And so what's the same about this recession? Well, like every recession, this downturn is economically disruptive and it's unevenly distributed across the economy. There's variation across geography, there's variation across industries, and there's variation across income classes. And as unclear as that might seem, that's something that's the same about recessions. And it's true intensively in this one. But there is also a, a common ground on the psychological side of things. This recession, like all others, increases fear and uncertainty. And that affects business and consumer confidence. Mm -hmm. Business and consumer confidence affects behavior. And those reinforce the downward spiral. And until you break that, you know, you, you are, are trapped in this, in this recessionary spiral. I think that that's there. Joseph Schumpeter, the, the, the uh, uh, economist at, at Harvard who came from from Europe in the 1930s had this phrase, creative destruction. And creative destruction is another similarity in this, uh, in this recession. Um, right now, we're focused on the destruction side of that, right? Bankruptcies, job losses, foreclosures, evictions, and the obvious losers across the economy, you know? And that they deserve our close attention. That's part of, of, of the economic cycle. The creative element is much less apparent. And it's not really guaranteed. That's, that's a matter of, of action. That's a matter of behavior. But it is the key to understanding why cycles are cycles, right? Every phase of the cycle, recession, expansion, recovery, peaking, is time limited. They don't go on forever. And so recovery follows recession inexorably, although its timing and its description, you know, are going to be, are going to differ, right? Um, but that's where the creativity, the newness comes in. I'll, I'll try and talk about that in a little while. 
So if those are the things that are the, the same, what's mm -hmm. different? Going in, this is a policy-induced recession, not a market-induced recession. And the only one of the eight recessions that I've lived through since graduating from college in 1970 that was like that, was policy-induced, was the recession of the early 1980s. Again, a double-dip recession, a WJ recession that was caused when the Fed raised interest rates uh, to the upper teens and even into 20% on the treasuries in order to squeeze inflation out of the economy. Very painful, but very effective. And we lived off the strength of that, that policy move for, uh, uh, for nearly 35 years. So this downturn is like that. It's policy induced. The other thing that's different though is that this is a very deep recession. We've never before seen uh, uh, week after week after week after week of initial unemployment claims above a million and tens of millions of people out of, out of work, some with jobs that will never come back. You know, that's, that's new. Our hold is very deep, and I think we're not going to see us return to uh, pre-pandemic levels of GDP at the earliest into 2022. And we're not gonna see us get back to the level of aggregate employment that we had in, at the end of 2019 until maybe 2025. So we have to be prepared for that long uh, element. Why? You know, why, why have that, that, dark, that, uh, uh, that dark perspective? And it's, it's because this recession is not likely to be responsive to the traditional Keynesian yank of, of fiscal and monetary policy that puts money in the hands of, of consumers. Um, yes, you need to do that. You need, you need to do that. But our potential for growing the economy is, is limited. Uh, and it's limited by uh, some factors that, we, uh, that, that we've long had to worry about. You know, a shrinking uh, growth in the labor force. Uh, a lack of, of new immigrants bringing vitality to the uh, to the economy, a lack of investment in research and development, enhancing our productivity. So, you know, I think we should be prepared. And real estate needs to be prepared for job growth. For example, during the 2020s, all the way to 2030, that average about 75,000 jobs per month, rather than the 200,000 jobs per month that we got used to in the last uh, uh, decade. So that's very, very different. It's very different from not only the post-global financial crisis recovery, but it's also very different from the uh, savings and loan uh, crisis re recovery. So this is different in that, in that respect, that the economic potential for the country is not at the two and a half or 3% GDP growth level, Mm -hmm. but more at 1.5 or 1.6. Again, I don't think we fully embrace uh, that in the way we model cash flows for real estate, mm -hmm. in the way we model earnings for corporations. Uh, and I think and when we begin to realize that, 
that's going to create some pricing pressure in both the equities markets and in the commercial property markets. Well, that all seems very dark. And yet you end your economic analysis with the thought, don't take the counsel of despair. What possible reasons do you have for recommending hope as the governing perspective for the economy and real estate at this particular time? You know, um, hope is not the same as wishful thinking. You know, hope is a virtue. And the Latin term virtue means strength. You know, the way to act in a hopeful way is to draw on our strengths. And the United States still has enormous strengths in its, its favor. And it's a strength that is future oriented. Our best days are not in the, in the past. Our best days are, are ahead if we embrace it. So we compare this recession with the Great Depression of the 1930s. And I argue that the way out of the Great Depression was not to have nostalgia and try to get back to the Roaring Twenties and the Gilded Age. It was to embrace a new way of doing things. And that happened not only in the administration of, of FDR, but in Truman and in Eisenhower after it. You know, we took advantage of, of, of slack in the economy to put people to, to work. Uh, we uh, invested in education and in science in the, GI, in the GI Bill, and in infrastructure in the Federal Highway Program. That's our, our challenges. And it served the country and it served the real estate industry very well for about 50 years. You know, um, so my first reason for hope is the understanding that we have a pathway out of our troubles if we pay attention to the lessons of history. I don't suggest a carbon copy of that, uh, I agree with the, the quote that's often attributed to Mark Twain, that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? So what are the current analogies to that? So given the deep level of unemployment that we have and recognizing that there are millions of, of workers, many of whom have significant capabilities, uh, but who are finding their jobs not only evaporating, but maybe never coming back, Let's find ways to put those skills and talents to work. And infrastructure is a good example of that. You know, when you think of that as being blue-collar work and shovel-ready projects, that was the way that was framed uh, in, in the last stimulus, big stimulus package we had. You know, infrastructure requires all sorts of skills. You know, it requires engineers, right? It, re it requires planners. It requires uh, uh, more and more people who are savvy in terms of technology and, and computers. And there are lots of people with those skills who need to be put, put to work. So finding a way to use the slack in our, in our job force for long-term benefit in the, in the economy. And this is an ideal time to do that because right now the interest rate on the 30-year treasury is one and a quarter percent. You can borrow 30-year money at a point. If you can't leverage that into an infrastructure investment that has positive ROI, mm -hmm. we're just doing something wrong, right? So the second thing is that 
COVID exposed something about our approach to the global supply chain, mm -hmm. right? And that was that our dependence on the just-in-time supply management technique, which drove down costs tremendously, turned out to have an Achilles heel. And that was that in a disruption, in a disruption, you didn't get the supplies that you need. So we have to have kind of a, a, a reboot in terms of a, a just-in-case element to supply chain, not replacing just-in-time, but complementing it. So what does that mean? That means some reshoring of, of, of operation, it means reshoring of, 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 of goods. Again, positive for the economy. And I think, lastly, an accelerated commitment to science. You know, uh, the investments that we made in the, in the 50s and 60s gave us NASA and the Moon, and the moon program. It gave us the, uh, the transistor. You know, it gave us modern communication and eventually led to, to the internet, mm -hmm. right? So investing in both applied science and pure science, in the 1960s, we devoted about 17.5% of our uh, GDP to R&D. We invest about half that now. And no wonder our if you think about it, it's gone down. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, all of this working remotely that has become a mandatory necessity in nearly zero prep time would not be possible without all of the advancements and the infrastructure that's already been built into our telecommunications network. So prime example of how we're still benefiting from that so dependently today. So, so I, I see these, these is important. And the important, the important thing, again, as an economist, to, to say, is this idea of pushing forward on infrastructure, advancing science, reconfiguring our supply chains, this is all a very capitalist approach. You know, this is uh, not a blow up the economy approach. This is incremental, it's uh, substantive, and it is importantly new. It, it, it's a change from what we've done for the last 20 or 30 years. And doing this new thing is the creative part of creative destruction. So right now, the dark side is the destruction. The hope comes from, from the creativity in the operation of the capitalist economy. So can you, can those you are my thoughts. No, that's fantastic. Thanks you. Thank you so much. Can you also share, there was another point that you made near the end of your analysis that was looking at what the business roundtable um, is, yeah. is up to these days and how hundreds of CEOs of major firms are, are, are having a shift in their overall thinking. Can you speak to that? But yes, this was just last summer. This was August of 2019 that 200 executives, CEOs, of the biggest corporations in, in, in the country, multinational corporations, said that the mission of the corporation was not restricted to developing short-term shareholder value, but it was to improve the economic uh, circumstances of all of the stakeholders of the corporation. Mm -hmm. you know? So yes, profits are, 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 are important. But that needs to be considered not in the quarter-to-quarter -quarter element of, of, of the earnings statement, but what are you doing in terms of economic, social, and governance? 
and ecological things. You know, uh, and that opening up of, of, of perspective is you know, a much fuller and richer understanding of the way the corporation functions in our economy. Uh, you know, we, uh, we depend upon and work within the context of the businesses that we're part of, right? And mm -hmm. the, uh, the Roundtable's uh, statement on, on, uh, on the mission of the corporation says that all of the stakeholders, the employees, the suppliers, the, uh, the customers, you know, uh, and the community within which the corporation exists, all need to be considered and improved by the action of the corporation year over year over year. I think that that is uh, a shift uh, in, in corporate governance theory uh, uh, that hasn't, it's the, the largest shift that we've seen since the late 1960s and early 1970s. Well, that topic, environmental, social, and governance, ESG, is actually our top 10, our number 10 issue, um, which we'll be doing a future podcast on. So with that, thank you, Hugh. We are grateful for your compelling perspective, and I feel privileged to have been part of the conversation. Join us next time for another discussion of one of the top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier on behalf of the Counselors of Real Estate. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the top 10 in 20.